0: You ever walk out on the stage too early? You ever do that? (laughs) It's it's one of those moments that causes you to pause and consider what your life is really all about. (laughs) Okay, so, uh, hey, props to the band today. Great job. Thank you, huh? We have a future in music, Natessa, I think. I think. Great stuff. Great stuff. Hey, well, happy Father's Day, dads. Great to see you today. I know that a lot of uh, the young folks went home to where mom and dad are, so a lot of them are gone today. But um, so great to see you, and I um, want to let you know, hey, this is the week that we're signing on the dotted line for the property. <laughs> Woohoo! yeah. And, um... We, as of next uh, Friday, we'll, we, we will be beholden to the bank, <laughs> <laughs> makes you uh, tense up a little when you think about that, but um, it's exciting. Today is the last day of the South Sand Community Church having a final service today in the building, so a little bittersweet for them. Um, and uh, Greg uh, Volkart and Fran, as well as Bill and Deb Marchant, are over there. Uh, This morning they're doing a passing the baton ceremony, and um, so uh, it's it's pretty exciting. And they have just been just a wonderful group of people to work with, and so it it really has been a pleasure. Um, In light of that, and we've been saying this for the last few weeks, if if you are able, and we know that not everyone is able to do this, we're, we're we've. We've received against our vision next goal of the uh, projected goal is over over five hundred thousand dollars now that's been pledged. We're we're just over two hundred and seventy thousand. Uh I've forgotten the total figure, two hundred and seventy six. Is that about right, Dave? Close enough. Somewhere in that ballpark. Um we'd like to be at about three hundred right now and so Uh, If you are able, and we we understand not everyone is able to do this, but if you are able to front load your your pledge, uh, your giving to Vision Next, which is our our capital campaign, we would greatly appreciate that and see if we can get closer to that number a little sooner. Uh, It is Father's Day at the back this morning, guys. Uh, Whether you are a dad or got that glimmer in your eye and you're going to be, take one of these with you. Uh, I'm not sure it will help you with that glimmer in your eye. But it will make your day better. So happy Father's Day to you! We are in Romans. Surprise, surprise! I, I, was, I was doing some extrapolation the other day and kind of looking how long this is going to take us. And if we just if we just march right through this, we could finish right about Christmas. But I think we're gonna we're gonna take a little break for Christmas. You think that's a good idea? Yeah. So it's going to be in January, maybe February, that we'll finish Romans. Um, yeah. Oh my word. That's what I said too. It wasn't my exact words, but it was what I was thinking. So, uh, but here's the deal: we want to take our time and really understand this book, and really understand what God wanted to convey. This is the the most powerful, I think, the most powerful book in the in the whole of the Bible, and uh, certainly in the New Testament. And in terms of understanding what. The, the essentials of Christianity and, and what it's really all about. And Martin Luther referred to Romans as the gateway to the gospel, uh, the gateway to the faith. And so um, we need to understand what God is speaking to us here. So uh, we are in message number 20 today, Romans six fifteen to 23. Let's stand again and read our scripture together. What then? from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is his word. You may be seated. Well, if you've been here with us, you know that the, as you read that that first question, "What then are we? Sin, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace?" Uh, sounded a lot like what we read in verse one of um, chapter six here, which we saw previously, where the question was, "Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound?" That is, you know, if 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 our sin is new is Large, it's huge, you know, it's, it just seems like it's so extensive and so, in our minds, unforgivable. But God's grace uh, superabounds to cover that, regardless of the extent of our sin, the extremity of our sin, the heinousness of our sin, the habitual nature of our sin. God's grace covers it, and that's what Paul is, is saying. In chapter 5, verse 20 He said, Where sin increased, grace increased the more, grace superabounded. So if that is true, why not continue in sin so that just grace may continue to abound? It's like the like the Incredibles, you know, the stretching to reach all of that. Why not? Why not? You know, and uh, pretty significant question. And so this week he's saying, are we to sin and literally there keep on sinning because we are not now under law, but under grace. Minor differences between the two, but essentially the same question being asked again. And the question is whether, from a practical standpoint, grace actually gives permission to sin. Or grace may even encourage sin. And on the one hand, it sounds kind of theological, sounds kind of theoretical, and and yet it's a practical question. Because in that moment of temptation in our lives, when we're considering yielding to temptation, when we're considering yielding to sin, You know, in our minds we might say, hey, grace is going to cover this. So it looks pretty good to me. Why not? Right? I mean, we've all been there. And it's a daily kind of question. So it's important for us to, to apply our minds to this. In fact, I hope you have a Bible open in front of you, whether it's electronic or paper. And if you don't have a Bible uh, you can raise your hand and there's nobody ready to bring you one. But um, there are some Bibles in the aisles. Scott will bring you one. Scott just grabbed there you go, Scott'll bring you one if you want if you need a Bible. But I hope you have a Bible open. Anyway, so in the restating of the question, there are, there are two notable changes of emphasis this time around. First, Paul's gonna develop the same argument that freedom to sin is incompatible with reality for us as Christ followers it's it's incongruous it's in, inconsistent now with who we are in Christ but in verses 3 to 14 which we looked at previously he described this in this way he described it in terms of being united with Christ by faith and i use this kind of thing this this visual that we're united with him by faith and it's not something that we do I mean, we put our faith in him, but but God unites us with Christ in such a way that his death becomes our death, his burial becomes our burial, symbolized in baptism, and his resurrection becomes ours. We're raised to newness of life because God united us with Christ when we trusted in him. In verses 15 to 23 now, He's going to describe it in terms of being voluntarily enslaved to God. He's switching the metaphor. The second change of emphasis then has to do with how these radical changes in our lives came about. In verses 3 to 14, the emphasis was, as we already saw, in what was done to us. What was done to us, namely, that when we transferred our trust to Christ, we were united with him, And now in verses 15 to 23, the new emphasis is not on what was done to us, but on what we did, which was to yield ourselves to God, to obey him. So rewinding and restating the question, Paul again responds to the question with what we call the moral objection. And and he repeats it again in both cases. Paul gives that same emphatic objection, by no means. And as we saw two weeks ago, the various translations give us the overall flavor of this phrase, may it never be. God forbid, no, not at all, certainly not. That's unthinkable, never, what a ghastly thought. And again, his argument begins with the same astonished question, don't you know? Now, a teacher in school that says, you know, he'd ask the question, has this penetrated your gray matter? And I think that that's what Paul is saying here. Don't, hasn't this kind of dawned on you? Hasn't, hasn't this come to your realization, your recognition yet? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And again, in verses 3 to 14, the essential question was, since by faith... We were united with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And as the result, we are dead to sin and we are alive to Christ. How can we possibly persist in sin? Now, how can we practically persist in sin? That's a no-brainer for all of us. But how can we morally persist in sin? How, How can, in the face of all that God has done, Can we persist in sin? In verses 15 to 23, the central question is now, since through our conversion, since as we came to faith, we offered ourselves to God to be his slaves, and as the result, we are obligated to obedience, how can we possibly claim the freedom, the right, the privilege of continuing in sin? So now in verse 16, Paul establishes the basic principle that guides his thinking throughout this passage where he says, in essence, the self-surrender leads to slavery. Self-surrender leads to slavery. Now, the notion that we would be slaves to anyone is kind of antithetical to the American mind on several levels, right? You know, we're not going to be slaves to England. We're not going to be slaves... (laughs) <laughs> to germany we're not going to be slaves to japan uh, and now today we're not going to be slaves to what others tell us should be our morality right i mean that's that's today that's the, the, the this is my body this is my right i can do with it what i want and don't you tell me what to do we have that attitude self-surrender leads paul says to slavery and and it wasn't just an ethereal concept, detached from the ground. Paul's talking about something that his Roman readers would have understood very, very clearly in graphic, practical terms. Not all of the slaves in the Roman Empire, and if you know anything of history, you already know this. Not all of the slaves in the Roman Empire were captured in war, for example, or purchased on the, you know, in the in the slave market. Um. Some slaves were just everyday people who found themselves in deep poverty, severe circumstances. And in order to simply survive, to be clothed and housed and fed, they offered themselves as slaves to a master. And from that point forward, for the rest of their lives, they were enslaved to that man or that woman. Bond servants, that's the word that this translated here, slave, that Paul chose. The word doulas, and he used it elsewhere to describe himself as a bond servant of Christ Jesus, a servant by choice, a servant for life. How many of you women have your ears pierced this morning? Huh? Bunch of you, right? So here's what would happen at that moment: as the when the when a prospective master would receive a slave, they would take that slave and they'd go to the doorpost of the house. You'd imagine this if this happened in your local jewelry store, right? When you're, but you know, hang on just a minute. Go in the back room, get a hammer and an awl. They come out with this dirty hammer and this dirty awl, and they just take you over to the post and they stick your earlobe against that post and bang, and they pierce it and they put a ring in that ear. And it was a mark. It was it was like branding cattle. It was it was kind of that same parallel. You now belong to me, and that's the mark of that. Reality. Bond servants. And Paul's point here is that being saved, being freed from slavery to sin, doesn't mean you're freed from having a master. You can either be a slave to sin or a servant to God, but you can't be neither which we think we can be, right? I'm just a slave to myself. I don't, I'm not going to call my own shots. No. Paul says you can't be neither and you can't be both. Remember the great prophet Bob Dylan, who, who expressed that quite clearly back in the day when he sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. I don't know, did Bob Dylan actually sing? What, what do you call what he does? Poetry prolonged extended words poetry you're going to have to serve somebody yes indeed you're going to have to serve somebody it may be the devil and it may be the lord but you're going to have to serve somebody that was wasn't a bad, wasn't a good impression at all but who can imitate bob dylan i don't know see in this passage Paul wants his readers to let that truth sink in. There are only two masters. All of humanity serves one or the other. And notice how Paul weaves the concept throughout the passage. In verse 16, you're either a slave to sin or a slave to obedience. In verses 17 to 18, you're either a slave to sin or you're slaves to righteousness. In verses 20 to 22, 22, slaves to sin or slaves to God. And all those in the right-hand column mean the same thing. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. You're going to have to serve somebody. Jesus himself said that no one can be the slave of two masters. You might say, "Oh, I'm just a slave to myself. Well, good luck with that because you're not all that. You're a crummy master. Sorry. That expression, obedience to obedience, in verse 16, you notice that expresses the very essence of slavery. Everything... Or everyone, rather, is offering themselves to someone. And everyone lives for something. Whatever that thing is, or whomever that person is, becomes a master, and we become their servant. To help us to understand that, Re- Rebecca Pippert penned these helpful words when she said, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. The Bible says that in a variety of ways. Jesus said, "Where, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about that. We offer ourselves to whatever we seek as what we perceive to be the highest good in life. Whether it's power, or wealth, or recognition, or acceptance, or pleasure, or sexual fulfillment, or being married, or our families, or our careers. And then we become slaves of whatever that thing may be. And, and um, this is what Paul's attempting to help us, I think, understand. No one is ultimately in control Of their own lives. You and I are controlled by what we offer ourselves to. Whether or not you claim to be religious, you have a God. Might be a little G, but you have a God. We're all worshipers. It's hardwired into everyone's core existence. We were created to be worshipers, worshipers of God. And we became worshipers of everything else. And that explains Paul's may it never be and his don't you know. And anyone who wonders whether a Christian can persist willfully in a sinful lifestyle is ignorant about the enslaving nature of sin. And so Paul wants us to understand conversion leads to an exchange of slaveries. You say, well, I went from slavery to freedom, didn't Yes. And Paul's already pointed to that fact in the question of verse 1, and the phrase is under law and under grace. That word under is a military term. It means to be under authority, to be subordinate to someone or something. And there's an authority inherent in the law under which we once lived. There is an equal or greater authority inherent to God's grace. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised in his first letter to the Corinthians Paul said you're not your own for you were bought with a price Therefore, glorify God in your body. We live for him. Grace, as we saw last week, lays upon us the obligation of holiness, of living for him who purchased our salvation with his blood. In verses 17 to 18, Paul talks about this conversion experience, and he talks about it in very different terms than we're used to. Here's what you were here's what you did, um, here's what happened to you, and here's what you became. So first, here's what you were. He says, you used to be a slave to sin. A slave to sin. That's your former state. Or if you're not a believer today, that's your current state. You're a slave to sin. In his letter to the Ephesian church, Paul expressed the same thing in a larger form. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, apart from Christ, you're like a target employee. You got these got this bullseye on your chest and on your back and every other part of your body. You're you're an object of God's wrath. He goes on and he says, So here's what you did. You wholeheartedly obeyed the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You you obeyed it from your heart. It's an unusual way of describing Christian conversion, isn't it? But there it is. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul describes the proper response to the gospel as the obedience of faith. You go back to chapter 1. Remember chapter 1? That was like a former life, wasn't it? <laughs> chapter 1. But here Paul doesn't say that they obeyed God or Christ, although it's implied, but rather that they obeyed a certain standard or a certain form of teaching, of doctrine. Paul understood Christian conversion not only as trusting in Christ, but also as believing and acknowledging the truth, coming under the authority of of the truth of God's word. Jude, the brother of Jesus, in that one chapter book that bears his name, appealed to the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He said it's being compromised, it's being corrupted, it's being Um, deteriorated by people who are false teachers in the church contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and I, I think paul's unusual expression the standard of teaching to which you were committed and jude's expression the the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints mean basically the same thing he's talking about a a body of sound foundational doctrine that that expresses and informs the the essence the sum and the substance of essential christian faith and and you know we We have denominations, right? We have Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Assemblies of God and Foursquare. You know, we've got all these different denominations that are part of the, the larger body of Christianity. And each one has a slight tweak. You know, some people like to worship one way, some people like to worship another. Some like extreme informality, some like extreme formality and ritual and and. And yet, to, to qualify as a Christian church, there is this essential body of doctrine to which you must subscribe, to which you must submit, which you must share. And so, uh, you know, when you look around at the, at the Christian denominations, we have much more in common with each other than, than what separates us. The standard of teaching to which you were committed, the the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In his letter to the believers in the city of Ephesus, Paul described the immature condition of, of many Christians as being like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And you know people like that, right? I mean, every new teaching, every new doctrinal whim, they go, oh, that's that's the new, that's the greatest thing. And they're running down the path. And they just keep going this way and that way. And there's no maturity. There's no substance to their, to their personal faith. They don't know the truth. And so they're vulnerable to deception and manipulation. And by contrast to the Christians in Colossae, He wrote, we proclaim him, we we proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, there's there's a core body of doctrine which every Christ follower is to embrace under the authority of which we're to submit. And for Paul, conversion began with that knowledge of the truth and obedience to that truth. And any continued spiritual growth just simply built on that foundation. And so he writes in, again to the Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. You know, after, after every wedding, there's a marriage, right? <laughs> and after every conversion, there's a walk. So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, the faith, the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It really explains so much about why it seems that so many who claim to be Christians seem to be only kind of half converted, right? Think about that. They believe in Jesus, but they reject so much of what is contained in God's Word. They kind of of scrutinize God's Word uh, under the filter of their own understanding, their own wisdom, or popular culture. So that when the standards of popular culture come into conflict with sound doctrine, they side with the world. And they say, How can you how can you believe that? How can you teach that? Well, the answer is God said it. I didn't. Now I didn't say these things. God says them. And there are so many things like that in our world today. There are hot political topics, hot social issues, where we as Christians are being forced more and more to take stands on on God's word. And that's why we'll hear Paul urge us in chapter 12 of Romans, which we'll get to when we're ready for retirement, not to be conformed to the world, not to let the world squeeze us into its mold, but he says instead, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How does that renewal come about? It comes about when we submit ourselves to the truth and the authority of God's Word, no matter what the world may say. But in order to know what God's Word says, we have to study it. We have to read it. We have to meditate on it. So here's third then. He says, here's what Happened to you. You were emancipated from slavery to sin. First part of verse 18. And as we've observed the past two weeks, to be emancipated from slavery is not to become morally perfect overnight. It's not to be incapable of sinning. We're very capable of sinning, right? All God's people said, Yep. Instead, it is that by his death and his resurrection, Jesus rescued us out of the lordship of sin, out of the dominance of sin. And into the lordship of God, out of the dominion of darkness, Paul wrote to the Colossians. And into the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus Christ, He bought us from the auction block in the slave market. And then forth He says, "Here's what you then became: you became a slave of righteousness." And you say, wait a minute! Didn't I go from slavery to freedom? Yep, you did. And therein lies freedom in being slaves. To righteousness, by the grace and power of God, you were transformed from slavery to sin, and now you are a bondservant, a slave by choice of righteousness. In verse nineteen, Paul continues to compare and to contrast the two slaveries. He draws an analogy between them and the ways that they develop, because there's a dynamic development to slavery. There is a dynamic development to sin, and there's a dynamic development to righteousness. He says, "I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations." I'm using, in in essence, he says, "I'm I'm applying as many human metaphors as possible to help you understand this reality." For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Notice that a two-word phrase, "leading to." Neither slavery is static, both are dynamic. Verse 16 says that one leads to death and one leads to righteousness, which is eternal life. Here in verse 19 we read that one leads to more impurity, more lawlessness, more moral deterioration. The other leads to sanctification, moral transformation, which is the Holy Spirit's process of shaping us and conforming us to the character of Christ. The word sanctification comes from the same root word that's most often translated holiness. There can be no spiritual growth. Listen now. There can be no spiritual growth toward holiness without obedience to Christ. There's no such thing as self-styled Christianity. It's about obedience to Christ and obedience to his word. So there's this paradox here that slavery is freedom and freedom is slavery. <laughs> it's kind of what Paul is saying here in verses 20 to 22. For when you were slaves of sin... Back then, you were free in regard to righteousness. And all this stuff about righteousness didn't matter. It's like, well, who cares about any of that? You're free. You're not under it. You're free. You're not really free because you're headed for hell. But you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you now, now having been converted, are ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get, the product of all of that, leads to sanctification and its eternal life. Each slavery offers a kind of freedom. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, and each freedom is a kind of slavery. Now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. One results in shame and death. And death in verse 21, notice this, in verse 21, death stands in contrast to eternal life in verse 22. So the death that's in view in verse 21 is not just physical death, but eternal separation from God, spiritual death. The first slavery, slavery to sin, had you on the highway to hell. And that's, apart from Christ, that's where you are today. You're You're on a fast track to condemnation. The other slavery, slavery to God, leads to sanctification, increasing holiness, and eternal life. Paul Paul concludes the section with words that are very familiar to, to many Christ followers. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice there that sin pays wages, but grace does not. Sin pays wages. You get what you deserve. Death, separation from God that begins now and continues into eternity. Someone shared with me between services a song from the band Nine Inch Nails. And a chorus that goes, bow down before the one you serve. You're going to get what you deserve. And there you go, right? Sin pays wages. Grace doesn't pay wages. Grace doesn't give you what you deserve. It gives you what you don't deserve. Grace, scandalously, but lovingly, extends a free gift, a gift you could never deserve, eternal life. So here's the thing. The only basis on which that gift is given is the atoning death of Christ. What does atoning mean? The word atonement means has has two dimensions to it. One is, and this is the big theological term, expiation. You don't have to know. You don't have to repeat that on a test or anything. You don't even have to know how to spell it. But expiation. It's easy to remember because X means something's gone. And, and in this case, by his death on the cross, Jesus paid your sin debt. So your sins can be forgiven because he died. He died in your place as your substitute. He he hung in literally there for you, and so your sins are forgiven. And the second part of it is propitiation. And again, there's not going to be a test on that word either. But but it means that that in his death, Christ not only paid your sin debt, but he removed from you the wrath of God that was that was on you. Remember we talked about the the bullseye. The wrath of God, you are by nature children of wrath. And what Christ did on the cross is he absorbed all of the wrath of God. You remember when Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, uh, you know, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. What cup was he talking about? It was the cup of wrath. The cup of the fury of the wrath of God. Referred to in other places in the Bible. Jesus wasn't asking to be delivered from death. Jesus wasn't a coward. What made him shrink at the thought of it was that he was going to bear all of the penalty for all of our sin and the, the sin of the whole world. God's wrath was going to be unleashed on him at the cross. Jesus is your forgiver and he's also your wrath absorber. The only way you can receive the gift of the free gift of eternal life is because of the atoning death of Christ and the only condition of receiving it then is that you're united with Christ by faith. Which means literally that you you say, okay, I'm going to stop trying. I'm going to stop saying that everything I do ought to be accepted by, all the good things I do ought to be accepted by God is good enough. The Bible says that do not work that way. The Bible says that all of our righteousness, all the good things we do, all the good things we think, all of our good intentions, all of our good actions, all of our good words, amount to nothing. They amount to filthy rags, one, one of the biblical writers said. They're just nothing. And so we give up our, our trust in our, our own faulty morality we don't, we give up our trust in our religiosity we give up our trust in our charitable giving or our charitable activity and all those things that we think ought to count again you know toward us on our ledger and god says that nah, none of that matters what matters is you trust in my son and so we transfer our trust from all of all of all that we can do and now we're we're bereft of doing anything because it's all taken away from us and we say Okay, Jesus is my only hope, and we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that when we do that, God gives us this gift of eternal life. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord. You're going to have to serve somebody. But it is within, it it is in becoming a slave to God that we discover our freedom, because that was what he created us to be. You know, you look under the hood of your car and you you can't see a lot these days because they're all covered in casing, but there was a time when you could actually see your engine. And, and you see all these different parts and they all have a role to play. Every one of them is important in an you know, internal combustion engine. You take a carburetor and try to use it as a radiator, it isn't going to work. So, A carburetor is most free when it's doing the work of a carburetor. In fact, it's the only time it's free. A radiator is only free when it's doing the work of a radiator. You and I are only free when we are in submission to God and living in that love relationship, faith relationship with Him that we were designed for, we were created for. So I want to invite you this morning to put your faith in Christ. And it's a simple invitation. You don't have to join a club. You don't have to sign a contract. You do have to give up your life. That's kind of significant. You need to become his slave. You need to offer yourself, present yourself, yield yourself, submit yourself to God. And when you do, your sins are forgiven. The wrath is absorbed. You're raised to newness of life. You're in a right relationship with God. Heaven is your home. All of that becomes true of you in that moment when you trust in Christ and you say, "Okay, I'm, I'm going to give it up." It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that as you put your trust in Christ, you understand it all or that you feel it all. But here, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now you know what is true, and so you act on what is true. What you know is true because God said it, and He meets you there, and He forgives your sin. He absorb he he. He he covers it all and you begin a new life and you find the purpose for which you were created. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Philippians 3.12. In the Living Bible it says, I don't mean to say I'm perfect. Far from that. I haven't become everything that God wants me to be, but I keep working towards that day when I finally will be all that Christ saved me for and wants me to be. There's a reason that God saved you so that you would find freedom because he loves you. And so I just urge you, urge you this morning, trust in Christ. And there you'll find who you really are and you'll find freedom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks so clearly into our lives. Lord, would, would you teach us what it means to live in joyful freedom of submission to you in obedience to your word. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you revealed yourself in Christ. Thank you that we come to know your will as we read and understand and study God's word, the Bible. Lord, would you continue your work in us of sanctifying us, making us the people that you want us to be, making us more and more like Jesus. We're far from it, Lord. But we know that that's the direction we're heading because that's what you've said you're about in our lives. And we say amen to that. For those today who are considering Christian faith, of trusting in Christ, the Lord, I pray that today might be the day that you grant them the gift of faith that leads to life. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.